0: My name's Dave, I'm an alcoholic, and um, I'm very grateful for uh, AA, I'm very grateful for NA, I'm grateful for all, for all the A's and all of the above, and because um, I qualify for most of them. And um, as I say, my predominant uh, thing is I identify as an alcoholic, um, but I pretty much know that um, I'm addicted to self, I'm addicted to... Anything outside of me—that's pretty much anything that tastes good or feels good or changes the way I feel. It pretty much, I want more of it, and I'm very—I guess you could call me a moorish person, because I just want more and more of everything. If it makes me feel good, I get a hit. I want the rest of it, so it doesn't matter. And you know, and I've—I've—I've I've, I've done most of the most of the the stuff that changes my uh, mood and changes my um, my outlook and um, gives me a short-term short-term hit. So that's the way I guess i have identifying this, and it's great. You know, I believe I believe that. Um, well, I don't believe much, but I I think that this is kind of the future of twelve step programs. I think that's pretty much where it's going to be. We're going to be sort of secular, and I think that's and I think that's a good thing. And I think that the Zoom era for me, the Zoom era has been a god's wrong word. Has been a god Has been um has been a miracle. It has been because it's certainly enhanced my sobriety. It's enhanced my quality of life because it's basically given me access to a load of people such as yourselves from all over the world. And I'm, I'm just forever, forever grateful, um, that, that I have this 12, these 12 step programs. And, you know, it's really helped me. Um, it's made me address the big book again and I've had to go and get the big book and I've had a good read through the big book several times. Um, I've done the steps again, a couple of times in different fellowships. Um, I'm also a member of, um, uh, adult children of alcoholics of of alcoholics as well as aA and as I said I qualify for all of them but um, my mother died uh, in two thousand and twenty at the end of two thousand and twenty um, she was a chronic chronic alcoholic um, and died a very very miserable awful death um, and very cynical awful death you know and it was one of those things that I had to cut myself off from her I hadn't seen her in 15 sixteen years um, because of her addiction and because of her alcoholism, and she was living with a man who beat her regularly, who um, and they would get drunk together, and it was it was awful. It was awful, It was an awful thing, and I had to stand by in the background and um, watch all this happening because I did you know, I, I tried to get a some kind of recovery, but you know it was like it was like when I when I suggested that she might want to get some help. You know, it was how dare I even suggest that she was an alcoholic or an addict of some kind. So, you know, it's just one of those things, and we all know. But it's a, it's a stark reminder, and I'm reminded of this disease. For me, my for most of my family um, are alcoholic or addict. My my son is currently at the kind of the early flourishes or the or the early early start of of alcoholism or addiction. And I went to see him last night. I hadn't seen him in a few months. I'd been away in the States and I went to see him last night and he was, you could tell he was stoned off his head. You know, it was one of those, the the closed lids, you know, the half closed lids and the the kind of the smile on his face and stuff. And it's just stuff like that. And I just, I don't pass comment anymore. I don't say anything. And I I don't, because he's going to have to find his own way. And it's one of, that's again, one of the things that's happened with Zoom is that I've been able to let go. I've been able to let go of a lot of stuff. And that's through doing the steps. I, I can't, I can't deny it. For me, doing the steps again and readdressing the steps has been um, amazing for me because it, it's I've, I've become a bit of a writer, and I write stuff out. And if there's anything, if I've got a pebble in my shoe about anything, about people, and mostly about people, then I write it out, and I know I, find, I try and find out what the story is and where that come from. And again, it's that step six and seven for me is where I when I find out there's a there's a chap in this room who helped me with this this last year and it's if i if i write down and i find out exactly where the root of this issue comes from be it from when i was 4 years old or when i was 44 years old when i find out where the root of that is i can i know that i've sort of um entirely ready to have those defects removed and for me i had to do some kind of ritual um, humbly asked for it to be removed. And I did some ritual and you know what? It was removed. And I got, I've had a, a lot of deforestation, a lot of deforestation over the past couple of years in terms of character defects and the way I go about my life. And, and I have to say, I'm traveling a lot lighter. I am traveling a hell of a lot lighter. And, um, you know, and I just recommend anyone to do it, you know, if you haven't done it or you don't want to do it and you can do it in your own, however you want to do it. But You know, and I'm always available if anyone ever wants to speak to me, you know, I'm sure I'm very happy to to talk to you about the way I've done it because it's helped me. You know, until the next and the next lump of shit comes rolling my way, and I have to deal with it. But for the moment, things are things are pretty good. And as a direct result of my mother dying, I found out I I, I opened, took that rock out, took the rock up and I looked under the rock and there was a lot of critters under there that I had to get rid of. And and I did, and 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 I was I was very very. It's it is it is a miracle for me. It was a, it was a, an amazing miracle. So, as um, you've heard, um, I guess you guessed from my accent, I'm, I'm from Australia. I was born and raised in Australia, in a, a born in a place called Mawullenbar, in northern New South Wales. Um, it's a country town, and um, was primarily raised in Queensland, which is the pointy bit on the east coast. If you don't know where, don't know your map of Australia. And I was um, raised in and around Brisbane and North Queensland in a place called Mackay, which is a sugar, sugar cane country. And um, I grew up pretty much the same as everyone. I enjoyed my sport. I enjoyed rugby. I enjoyed cricket. But I always was always a seeker as well. And I've always had an interest in spiritual matters. You know, I've always had an interest in spiritual matters. And it's my father was um, well, is uh, Catholic. He was um from an Irish Catholic family, and um he went to a private school in Brisbane, and they beat him mercilessly, beat him mercilessly in schools. and he be, he was a staunch atheist. and I can always remember as a child, and I've told this story a couple of times, I can remember there's a there's a in the western suburbs of Brisbane, there's a place called Tawong Cemetery, which is kind of dominates a bit of the the landscape out in the West. and there's this big plinth in the cemetery, and it's one of the landmarks. you know when you're going on the western freeway that you're going past, to Wong Cemetery. And I always remember in the car with my father, when I was young, I must've been four or five. And I knew what the answer was. I kind of knew what a cemetery was, but I asked him, I said, dad, what's that there? And he goes, that's a cemetery. And I was like, oh, okay. What, what, what happens in cemeteries? And he goes, oh, that's where they put dead people. I was like, all right. And then I sort of waited a bit and I went, so dad, what happens when you die? And he went, nothing. You're dead. It's black. It's finished. It's over. And I remember being absolutely terrified, and feeling very, 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 very um, frightened by that, and feeling, you know, upset. But that didn't stop me from from looking down that path, because I don't know if I didn't want to believe it or I couldn't quite believe it, but um, I kept on doing it through my through my childhood and into my teens and into my twenties and up until today, and I continued on. And then when I was only, when I got to my teens, as, um, again, I said, as I said, my mother's side of the family were chronic alcoholics and, I and my uncles got myself and my brother drunk when we were nine or ten and I remember being very sick, but it was also that feeling of being, it enabled me to be an idiot and act like a clown and be a fool and I kind of took to it like a duck to water and I realised, I remembered, you know, that that was a way, it was an excuse and I'd seen adult, adults do it and it was that whole thing, that levelling of, that leveling of behaviour and that sort of, and when you're born with that kind of chronic low self-esteem or chronic low self-worth or that you're not quite good enough, alcohol was the great leveler, and it enabled other people to come down to your level or you to come up to their level somewhere along the line, and it was like it was kind of like a, you know, like Tetris, I guess, in sort of thing. It was sort of for it was a temporary way of getting rid of that sort of inferiority and and raised me up or brought me down to wherever I should have been, and. I just took to it and by the age of 13 and 14 i was drinking regularly um i was nicking nicking stealing my mother's um wine and in australia you'll probably know that if anyone's been there and they've got these things called flagons which are these big uh cardboard casks which are full of wine you can get them in riesling and whatever wine you want and my brother and i would just be she'd be pissed and we'd be filling up our own glasses and drinking. There's awful stuff called Riesling. It was cheap, cheap wine. It was awful. But it got us drunk. And, you know, and I've had drinking dreams about those casks, you know. I have. Because it was so easily, it was so accessible as a child. And, you know, my, my brother and I'd go to bed pissed all the time, you know, drunk all the time. And it was just going through childhood. And and you're going through puberty and there's all that sort of stuff that comes with puberty and all the the the... the the issues that come with, you know, about with girls and stuff like that, and and you get kind of, I, and I became quite angry, and I became angry because my father was quite violent as well, um, and he abused me in a couple of different ways, mentally, physically, um, and my mother was again was kind of a, a lush and was totally pissed, and and I just, you know, you just grow up with that kind of. That becomes normal. It's it's the whole normal thing. And I don't know if anyone. I always think of that. Um, if anyone's heard of that, the serial killer in England called Fred West, and um, he was he was a notorious serial killer that they they got about 20 years ago, I think, in, in outside Birmingham, I think, and um, they rescued his family and he had a daughter, and his daughter that he grew up with and she was aware of all that had gone up. but she just thought that that was life that that perversion and that way of living. She thought that that was normal and she only worked out that that family life wasn't normal by watching Coronation Street on television. You know, I, just, I vividly remember that. And that's how I grew up and I just grew up and I just assumed that that's the way things were and that I was inherently different to other people. So other people had these kind of like 2.4 families and they seemed to, you know, all these, other, you know, they seem to have girlfriends and they had jobs and they had normal fam, no so-called normal families and, you know, things came normally to them, and they were at peace, and they didn't have hang-ups, and they had didn't have any of that stuff. And but I seemed to do, and that was my lot in life. And um, I was always less than, or, or different, or separate from, you know, the, the the cool people, or the people that seemed to have life that seemed to have life sorted. I was always different to that. And um, but that didn't. And you know, I was still doing the spiritual seeking thing, you know. And I was. I've read books about Buddhism and all sorts of different things. You know, I would read sci-fi and fantasy and anything, anything to escape, anything to escape. And I guess the spiritual seeking was a kind of a way of of, of escape as well. And it was kind of a diversion. And um, because, you know, lo and behold, i do anything to look at myself, I guess, as you know, growing up and again, it's that whole thing. I was never given the rule book. Growing up, I was never, ever given the rule book. You know, you go to Ikea and you get the instructions for all those really tricky sofas and, and all that stuff. But I was, you know, I just didn't get that rule book and everyone else seemed to get the rule book and I just made it up as I went along and I made it up by stealing ideas and stealing personalities and stealing concepts from other people, you know, and opinions. And, you know, when I had opinions about everything, but there were always other peoples that I I'd, I'd begged, borrowed and stealed, And I guess in, in retrospect, that's the way most of us do it. Um, but I certainly, my, my personality was a patchwork quilt of of other people's opinions and ideas and outlooks and you know i i could steal that from anyone from characters on television to my father to my mother to my brother to my uncle to people at school anything but any, i just did had no idea of who i was and those layers were created until i created this kind of this this monster i like, get yeah, well monster in most most cases it wasn't a monster but you know certainly um, the beast in me would come out when I had a drink, you know, and or I'd have a drug, or I'd do anything. The it's you know the beast in me was always there, and um, as I said, I was really good at sport and I was good at rugby and things like that. And you know, I was quite vicious and I was quite nasty. And if I got a drink in me as well, I was vicious and quite nasty. And um, that's. You know that's just how it went. And I, when I was got in my early 20s, I, I managed to get to university. I was reasonably, reasonably intelligent, and I managed to get to university. I was quite diligent about stuff when I couldn't be, when I needed to be, and I got to uni somehow. And um, but I, I started suffering from depression, or what I thought was depression at the time, and um, I went away again to find myself. I left left university for a year and went travelling to the north of Queensland and worked on a trawler and all sorts of stuff and did all that kind of stuff, which I thought would be really romantic and it wasn't because <laughs> it was hard work and it was graft and it, you know, but it was, but again, but it was always the booze was there. The booze and the drugs was always there to alleviate that. If there was any inkling of life's not quite right, quick, drink it away, just, or, you know, drug it away, whatever, you know, it's all that stuff. It was just always, the quick fix was always there. It was always at hand. And, um, but I managed somehow to graduate from university. I went back and I, and I did it. And um, and I just became a, a wanderer. I, got, I finished finished university and I just started wandering. And I started wanting to go travelling again. to I guess, I don't know if it was a geographical or not. I don't know if anyone here is from Australia, or I guess we got a last year from New Zealand. Um, Australia's not exactly a cultural hotspot, and that's with the great respect to it. There was there's certainly, you know, I grew up in Brisbane, which... Didn't have a great deal. It was a cinema and lots of football and, and stuff like that, which is nothing wrong with that. But I wanted to see the rest of the world. I wanted to see stuff that I'd seen pictures about and seen on television. So I wanted to go travelling, and I certainly, I can I continue to do that to this day. Uh, but I came to England and I set up set up base in England, playing sport, and um. And that's where the drink really settled in, because I guess anyone here is from Ireland or or the UK will know that the um, Aussie abroad is a notorious figure in in London. In particular, in Earl's Court and stuff like that, and you can get away with stuff, and as, as an Aussie, that you'd never get away with at home. And you can drink yourself, and you can be a lout, and you can do all that stuff because you play up to it. You 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 indulge that character of the, the 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 Aussie. You know the the Les Patterson abroad, if anyone knows who Les Patterson is. Les Patterson is. And um and be, and I took to it. You know, I took to, it. Was great because it's a great excuse to drink, particularly you combine rugby, which is you know, let's face it, rugby is all about drinking, and um, and I just took to it like a duck to water, and you know, and I got got into relationships and stuff like that, and I got um, got married, and um, and I always remember this. I guess this is an Irish-based meeting, but I, I've told the story a couple of times. But I, I used to play for uh, Blackburn Rugby Union Club. And uh, we went on our tour to Ireland, and um, I remember leaving one early Friday morning and getting on the bus in Blackburn, which is in Lancashire, um, 4,000 holes in Blackburn, Lancashire, if anyone wants to know the reference. And I got in to the bus, and that's the last thing I remember. And The next thing I remember, I materialised like the TARDIS from Doctor Who, barefoot, with no, no shoes on and no jacket, in the middle of winter, in Ireland, in a forest on the side of a mountain and I had no idea how I got there. I had absolutely no idea how I got there. I would blacked out on the bus. I assume I would blacked out on the bus. I'd got off, we had a pit stop, as they call it, and I'd wandered off into the woods and lost my shoes trudging through the woods. And I kind of sobered up, well, half-sobered up, and I was in the middle of nowhere, and I thought I was gonna die. I thought I was gonna absolutely die. And I can remember I saw um, some lights at the bottom of a valley, so I came rolling down this hill cut my feet to shreds and uh, came to the middle of this road and this VW combi van pulled up and I stood in the middle of the road waving and the lights were there in, this, in the darkness in the middle of the night. <laughs> and this um, this girl sticks her head out the passenger window and goes, where are you all mate? And I was like, are you from Australia? And she goes, yeah, I'm from Australia. She says, whereabouts are you from? I'm from Brisbane. I said, I'm from Brisbane. Whereabouts in Brisbane? I'm from Indooroopilly. I'm from Indrapilly, And it turns out she, was, she lived two streets away from where I was brought up. So she gave me a lift back to um, Dublin. And um, I always said this, I always remember, because I, I staggered back into the hotel and all my mates, the my so-called mates, were in the foyer, you know, having a few beers and stuff. And I walked in and I went, it's okay, guys, I'm all right. And they looked at me and said, why, where have you been? <laughs> They had no. Yeah, they they couldn't really give a fuck about where I was or what I'd been doing. But that's just pretty much the way I lived my life. And that blackout thing was a big thing for me. You know, I vividly remember, you know, material Christmas party. All of a sudden, then waking up or sort of sobering up in a phone booth somewhere in the middle of where I had no idea how I'd got there, on the phone to my then wife, asking her where I was, and she wouldn't have any idea where I was. You know, it's just because I've just. You know, I was. I, I, it had be, it'd become unmanageable. My life had certainly become unmanageable, and I'd become powerless over alcohol. And come uh, 2002, I um, hit a rock bottom. I'd hit several rock bottoms leading up to this, but this was the rock bottom that really kind of got me. And um, my wife decided she didn't want to be with me, and she was going to take my baby son away from me. And um, I'd lost my job. Um, I'd lost friends, you know, and I'd lost all my self-respect, blah, 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 you know, this whole cliche, but I just, I was at the lowest step I've ever been at. It was like, you know, that walking around with your eyes kind of full, like you're going to cry and that pain in your chest and that, 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 that grieving thing in your, in your guts. And that's what I got. I got, I had that grieving in my stomach and, um, it was the lowest, it was the lowest of the low and, um, somehow, and I just remember, I remember getting down on my knees in uh, the house where I was staying at in Bradford. And it was one of those things I just got on my knees and I just said, if there's a God up there, you've got to help me. Because I can't do this anymore. I just don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. And that's that last refu- refuge thing. Now, I'm. you'll find out later. What, I'll, t- I'll talk to you later about what, what I, do I do or I don't believe. But the next day I was in an AA meeting. And that I had no concept of AA the day before. I had no idea about what AA was, uh, was and what it was about had no idea, but I was in an AA meeting and I went to a Living Sober meeting, which I thoroughly recommend to anyone who's um, new in, is to get your hands on the Living Sober book, because I love the Living Sober book, particularly for New Days, and it was one of those, I lived by the the, the Living Sober book for the, for the per- first few months of my sobriety, but I went to this Living Sober meeting and they read, um, it was a chapter about availing oneself of a sponsor, and um, I didn't know what a sponsor was. But I remember thinking, that's great. So you've got like a somebody who helps you, like a personal kind of coach. And somebody said, yeah, that's what it is. Oh right, okay. And then I saw on the word somebody had mentioned that thing: if you don't have the first drink, you can't get drunk. And that was that was a cracking for me because I I thought that was genius because I realised you know it was that thing I I could never have one of anything. Like I said, I was a moorish person, and if I have one hit of anything, I want the rest, and I want more than the rest, and I wanted. Drink it dry, and you know and I've, I've been on planes from Australia, <laughs> from Australia to to England, and you know they and stopped it on Singapore Airlines, and they wouldn't they wouldn't serve me anymore because I'd drunk them full of less drink drunk them free of Tiger beer, and the Tiger beer was empty because I'd drunk it and was acting like a fool. It's that stuff I can never have one of anything, and I always say you know the, I can always remember coming home from the pub, and there'd be one can of beer left in the fridge, and I wouldn't drink it because I know that there wouldn't be any more after it. So I might as well not have any more because I couldn't get down the bottle shop and I wouldn't be able to buy any more. It's just things like that. You know, I've just, i I've got an extreme addictive personality, an extreme one, and I, even to this day, I've, I have to be mindful about having one of anything. And that just was that realization, you know, and that was that realization in that meeting, if I don't have the first one, don't have the first drug, don't have the first drink, don't have the first whatever, I can't. I won't. The dominoes won't start falling. So that was a realization because that's that's where I found identification. Somebody was talking about that, and I thought that's really good. I saw all those things about the steps on the wall, and that looked really complicated. Um, and there was they were talking in a different language. You know, it was a different language. But there was some. They were talking about their feelings. People in that meeting were talking about their feelings. And they were talking about kind of truth. and it's that whole thing. You know, when you're a seeker, in my sense, it's like they were they were talking about deep and meaningful stuff that really i just thought this is great this is great because i didn't want to be there because i was going to leave after five minutes you know i was going to sit up the back wait till the meeting started then sort of skulk out and um, but somebody as i always say somebody who's still in the fellowship that i know now offered me a cup of tea when i first walked in and that was really important for me because if she didn't do that i don't think i would have stayed And that's why I always give everyone a welcome no matter if we've got Zoom meetings and I'll put my details in the chat of the home group. But everyone gets a a warm welcome. And I think it's so important, whether it's face to face or Zoom, that everyone should be greeted because, you know, I have been in meetings in different parts of the world, in London, um, where I've shown up in a Zoom meeting. Nobody knew me from from a bar of soap. And I, nobody said a word to me. And if I was a newcomer, I would just thought, well, these people aren't very nice. not aren't very caring. So it's that thing. It's about having empathy in AA because I think, or NA or wherever, because we, we soon forget. I and I've been guilty of this myself is that we forget what it was like when we come in, you know, we build up, we become a somebody in the different fellowships we become, we get a few years under about or a few months under a belt. And we kind of, it's very easy for alcoholics to forget what it was like when we come in the, the terror, the psychic horror, um, and the low self-esteem that we have, and we, we we lose that empathy because in the early days, you know, you're desperate for anyone to just be nice to you. And you know, if I'm in, if if we got, in, if there's a newcomer in, or anyone comes in that I've never seen, I'll make sure. Even in, you know, I've just been in. Um, I was in Los Angeles a little while ago, and was, I went into a meeting, and I'd never been there before. But I saw somebody sitting on his cell phone. I gave him sh- when shake shook his hand and said hello, and it turns out he was. It was the first time he was at that meeting. So it's that it's that we have a responsibility to the newcomer in every sense. And it can be as simple as, for me, shaking the hands and making sure they stay and making sure because I've been in their shoes and it's remembering that because, again, we, 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 you know, I'm guilty of it, everyone's guilty of being big shots in, in AA and NA, you know, and there's a lot of them. There's a lot of bleeding deacons. So, you know, I'm always mindful, I always try, and, try and keep that humility and try and remember that. Um, and that's not, I'm not preaching there, by the way, but I'm just saying. so. After my first meeting I just had that epiphany and I remember driving away from that meeting thinking, you know what, I have I was relieved, I had a sense of relief because I was I'm an alcoholic. And I and I kinda knew what was wrong with me, that that feeling of never fitting in, never being part of anything, having that chronic low self esteem, and most obviously is the way that they drank and the way I drank and the way I took drugs was was I identified with what people are saying. And it was like, boom, you know, it was like the light bulbs were going off, you know, it was, it was, it was amazing. And I remember hitting the steering wheel going, I'm an alcoholic. And it was, it was an epiphany. And that was kind of my step one was done there, you know, because I I accepted it. I accepted that I was an alcoholic, and I could say that word, and that my life was totally unmanageable because I was already I was ready to give up. You know, I I was I'd had enough. I'd been beaten to a pulp by by my actions and by life and by my drinking. I'd been by that self-will. I'd been beaten to a pulp, and um, and I just I started I just kept on coming. You know, I kept on coming to AA, and and I and I and, I, and I've always made it made. It, and I just started getting to a load of meetings, and I started. Hunting in packs with you know other lads, other people who are new in, and we would drive around to different meetings all around the country and all around the region. And we just started, you know, going to different meetings, and that was really cool. And you'd pick them up, and there was a camaraderie and that fellowship, that satsang was happening. You'd talk about stuff before the meeting, which is really important. During the meeting was was cool. You'd sort of talk the business and you'd carry the message. Then after the meeting, you'd have a cup of coffee and some some cookies and some bikkies and whatever, and you'd. You were, and you became a gang, and it was great. And I always remember that. And slowly but surely, you start getting your life back. And that was a big thing for me is, you know, I started getting my life back, and and I started to get my wife back and my child back. And um, and I remember after about three or four months, I started, the meetings started, I started slipping off the meetings. And i and I had, by this stage, I'd had a, a sponsor who was a Kiwi, by the way, by Stu, and who, who... Who rang me one day, and because he, he'd knew I hadn't shown up to a to a meeting, and he just said to me, "What are your intentions with AA? Are you serious about it?" And I was like, "Oh, yes," and challenged me, and that was really good of him, because again, it's one of those things we're so lucky that we stay around in AA, because you know I always think it's I always I use this analogy, and rightly or wrongly, but it's like you know you've seen those nature programs where those those mother turtles, those giant sea turtles, come up on the beach. And they lay like a thousand eggs and they cover them up with their flippers and they go back out and then a few months later the little hatchlings come out and all all over down the beach there's like millions of these tiny little turtles baby turtles go out into the ocean and it's something like one comes back out of ten thousand and i think those figures are pretty accurate for aa in a lot of ways because i know that there's people who don't come back after the first meeting and then i know there's people who don't come back after three meetings and I know there's people who don't come back after six months and there's people who don't come back after a year and two years and five years and 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. And there's people, So we are, we are, the people who hang around are those, the bigger turtles who end up coming back to lay the eggs and carry the message. And I think that's what happens. And I, and so I, there's all through my sobriety, there's been instances and flashpoints and sliding door moments where I've come, I've stayed in AA and somebody's, reached out to me again who's reached out to me who said stuff or called me on my bullshit and said you know what are you going to be you're going to hang around and um you know i can vividly remember, i think i was at nine years sober and i'd been going to the same meeting for a while and the same people were talking and i can vividly remember this a woman that i knew who said the same story all the time and she was asked to do the main chair and i just remember standing up and walking out just thinking i don't want to hear this anymore and I'd fallen out of love with AA. I'd fallen out of love with, and that's simply what it was. Because for me, it was I was in love with AA, and it's like any relationship. I fell out of love with AA, and I had to have a, <laughs> I had a trial separation, and that happened for a year. And I would like to say that you know I was fine, but I wasn't. I wasn't. I wasn't fine. I didn't drink, but I certainly went doolally. I certainly went um, egotistical. I certainly became um, selfish and aggressive and because I know it was being part of that web of AA, it stretches me out and squeezes out all the self-will and all the delusion and all the illusion that I have about myself and that I think about the world. And up until that point, and and so I dropped out of that web and I'd sort of become separate from AA and because um, I thought I could, I needed, I thought I deserved life. and. I should do it better. And I just slowly but surely fell away from it. And it was only my sponsor at that stage who, in 10 years of sobriety, said, will you come and do a main share at uh, my local ex-home group? And I was like, yeah, okay, yeah, sure. And he'd always kept in touch with me, but he he knew what I was like, you know what I mean? And I came and did that main share. And I remember it was like, it was like sitting in a, a room full of Japanese and I had no idea what the language was and I had to tell the story and I felt like a fraud because I was basically had to tell people that I'd fallen out of love with AA and, um, and they were very gracious and they were very kind, but you know what? I went back the next week and I went back the week after and I slowly but surely fell back in love with AA and it was that, it was a great lesson for me and I was, and i looking back I was so lucky that I kept on coming back, I kept on coming back. And again it's that again it's that little turtle that little turtle got an op- another opportunity he survived the shark attack or the the seagull or whatever but he'd survived and he'd kept on going and 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 i and, and i've continued on to this day um and you know just on the seeking thing because i know this is a secular meeting you know i i love the secular side of aa and i love the secular side of, of recovery it's important for me um because I don't know what to believe, you know what I mean? All I know, and it's funny, because I was thinking about it on the way, when Mark asked me to come and um, and be really about this, is talk about this, and to really identify what it is for me, is that, you know, all I know, if I take away all the belief and all the stuff that I've read about, or you read about in a Bible, or you read about in the Quran, or you read about in this, all that's hearsay, it's hearsay. In a court of law, it's all hearsay. Unless I was there, everything is hearsay. And, I've, and I and I had this. I was I was living in Ireland uh, last year. I lived in Ireland, in uh, Northern Ireland, in, near Belfast, for six months. And I just remember walking on this beach and just you know thinking about this stuff because um, I'd been through some all sorts of stuff that had happened to me. I'd had my my son had tried to kill himself. My mother had died. Blah blah. blah all the all that stuff that happens in life, you know. And I and I'd faced everyone, you know. I'd faced everything as as a grown-up, as as we do in AA, you know, when we've been around for a while, we face it as a grown-up. And I just remember thinking, you know what, I don't know anything. All I know is that I'm present, and that I'm conscious, and that I'm alive, and that this picture show, there is somebody witnessing this picture show, and that's as good as it gets. And that, for me, was a revelation, and it was like, oh. And that was it. Now, I know there's been some spooky shit that's happened in my life, and there's been coincidences. Like I say, you know, meeting... Uh, 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 an Indra girl from Brisbane in the middle of the countryside in Ireland on a dark, wintry night. Was that a coincidence? I don't know. Maybe it could have been. Maybe not. I don't know. And, um, you know, I always think about there's a few, you know, I, I beg, borrow and steal a lot of stuff from a lot of places, and there's a couple of things that really strike, you know, for me, are important. I believe in step two, and step two in the sense that I'm willing and that I'm open-minded. And that's for me what free thinking is about. It's just being open minded. Because I know that there's people who are who are so open minded they're closed minded and they don't accept anyone else's belief. And I once I have for me, if I start believing in something, anything, whether it's a a, a, a religion, a football team, a political movement, whatever, that starts creating an ego for me and it nails me down. And I start nailing my colours to the mast for me. I can get drawn into arguments, I can get drawn into fights, and I can start uh, start having an opinion on stuff, which is fucking dangerous for an alcoholic. It's dangerous for me to have an opinion on anything. So I try not to now. And it's a great way of living. Um, and so step two is really, I, I, I kind of I blur between step two, step three, six, seven, eight, nine when I've got to, 10, and then 11 for me is great. And I do tw- step 12 as, some of you know i do a lot of step 12 i do a lawful lot of step 12 and i have done for the last two years um and i always remember you know and always i think about what they said you know when when buddha was around and i think that's they'd, they'd, a couple of his so-called disciples had come to him and says what happens when you die you know what happens when you get enlightened and and you know what happens when you die and buddha just went i don't fucking know Good answer. And that's pretty much the same for me. I don't know. I don't know. And that's a, and I'm really happy with that, that I don't know anything. All I know is that I'm an alcoholic, that I can't drink and that I can't have one drink one day at a time and I do these steps. And then the spooky stuff happens. That's when the spooky stuff happens because good stuff happens. I get a life. You know, I got a relationship that I've, that's, that's healthy. I've got friends all over the world. I get to travel. I've just spent two and a half months. In the US, traveling around, which has been awesome. I lived in Ireland for, like I say, last year, and I travel around and been there. I've been to Spain, and I can do that stuff. You know, I've got the freedom to do stuff. And I can, and I guess, and, and the irony is, is, if anyone's read the, the Gnostic Gospels, according to Jesus, the ones that they weren't allowed to put in the Bible, and there was one thing that he said, Jesus said, in all things, try and be a passerby. And for me, that's that's pretty cool. And try to be a passerby and not have an opinion. Now, whether or not that works for you or it doesn't, I'm open-minded. It might be right, it might be wrong. I don't know. But that's that's for me is that's where happy is. being open-minded and getting rid of this head and doing the steps and shredding away this self. Because for me, that's where the anon. That's that's where the anonymous thing comes in. Whether it's AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, or Narcotics Anonymous, anonymity comes when I shred the semblances of self, and there's no Dave, there's no David, there's nothing. I'm just a member who tries to carry the message to other alcoholics. So, um, and that's, that's free thinking, you know, meant free thinking, that's for me is free thinking. And so, yeah, it's good. I'm really glad to be here. Thank you very much for asking me um, and it's wonderful, cheers.